Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with me, Tara Setmayer. Welcome back. Uh, we've got a we've got a great episode for you this week. Um, author and former CIA operative, PhD David Priest is joining me in a little bit to talk about his new book, How to Get Rid of a President. Very provocative title, um, but uh, it's a fascinating book about the history of of how presidents have actually left office and the mechanisms that have been used throughout history to kind of do that. It's a fascinating book and David Priest, we're going to be talking about that in a little bit. Um, but it is uh, Thanksgiving week and I love this time of year because Thanksgiving is a great time to get together with your family, you get to cook and everything. I mean, traveling can be a pain in the ass, but uh, thankfully we don't have to go anywhere because we're having Thanksgiving in my house this year. Um, but uh, then after Thanksgiving means Christmas season is officially kicked off. We decorate the house, we go all out, we have an epic Christmas party every year. So I'm super excited. I love this time of year, I love the holidays. So that's on the, uh, that's kind of the, the upside of what's happening. Um, if you guys want to, I, you know, I like to interact with my listeners. So tweet at me, tweet at the honestly underscore Tara Twitter account. Tell me about some of your Thanksgiving traditions, what you like to eat, what are your favorite dishes. Um, if you want, send me some photos of like your desserts. Like I want to see what's going on because I'm going to chronicle some of that, um, some of what we're doing probably on Instagram too. But um, pre- like Thanksgiving shopping is nuts. Am I the only one? Every I try to go at times and I think it's going to be an off time where it's not going to be like the supermarket rush and it never works. It doesn't matter. If it's any time in the last like four or five days before Thanksgiving, it is a mad dash. When I lived in Jersey, my mom and I, we used to go to ShopRite. That was like our main supermarket most of the time. I mean, we had Whole Foods and other stuff, but you know, for everyday shopping, we go to ShopRite. Oh my gosh. It could be at midnight (laughs) and it's a zoo before Thanksgiving. It's nuts. So this year, I actually went to Wegmans. I'm a newfound Wegmans fan. I've never shopped at the supermarket before two weeks ago because we didn't have any near me. And now that we live in Northern Virginia, there's a Wegmans. So everyone talks, we got to go to Wegmans. This place is awesome. I love it. It's like a cross between Whole Foods and ShopRite, or I guess for other places in the country, like, I don't know, Publix or Safeway way better. This place is awesome. They've got everything. So I spent like almost two hours with the whole list. And there's, I don't have a big family. So there's only like a couple of us, but we still overdo it. We, we cook enough food for an army. And I guess that comes from when my mom, she used to run a homeless program down in South Florida. She started it and it started with us feeding people on the beach during Thanksgiving. I would fly down to our house in the Keys usually uh, for Thanksgiving back when I worked in Capitol Hill. Um, and I couldn't wait to get out of DC and I would go down there and nice and warm and we would um, help feed the homeless. And it turned into a whole big organization. My mom saw there was a need and so I helped her get it off the ground. And so Thanksgiving became really a holiday of service for us for almost a decade. Oh yeah, about a decade, maybe a little longer actually. And, uh, it was great. It was so, it was amazing. It was, um, it was cool to do that. 
but um, my mom, she's now uh, back in Jersey, so she she handed the organization over to other people in town that could run it better, and it took a toll on her. And um, anyone who's ever volunteered at that level uh, knows that it could be very stressful on you. It's tough when you're dealing with that because you're trying to save the world one person at a time, and it's hard. But God bless my mom. She was a saint for what she did, and I was happy to be a part of that for her. She helped a lot of folks, but that's what Thanksgiving. So it's almost like it's a foreign concept for me that we're not like cooking for 40 people for Thanksgiving. I have to get used to like, we can just relax and enjoy, enjoy Thanksgiving um, ourselves. But yeah, we, um, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. I'm going to make um, my famous banana pudding. It's a twist that I put on it. So I call it banana surprise. I've been making it since college. Um, we usually do artichokes because it's the Italian part of me. We love to do um, steamed artichokes. But like a couple years, we've got, it's like the, the chaos of Thanksgiving dinner. We make the artichokes and then we freaking forget that they're in the pot or we forget to eat them or we're so stuffed we don't eat them and then they go bad. And I love artichokes. They're one of my favorite things in life. So we made an executive decision this year. My mom and I were like, I, I think we're gonna have to skip the chokes because we always forget them. <laughs> I don't know. I might have a change of heart as, as I get closer to it. Um, but, I, and also sometimes it's hard to find decent sized artichokes too. You don't want those little ones. You know, you got to have a good California artichoke. So I don't know. I don't know if we're going to do chokes this year. We'll, we'll see. I don't think so, but I'll make a, I'll make a homemade apple pie. And my mom, she, my mom will whip up something good. So It'll be good. My husband will be happy. He makes a, a mean macaroni and cheese. Sometimes he puts lobster in it, but my mom's allergic to shellfish, so we probably won't do lobster mac and cheese because she can't have it. But um, yeah, so everybody contributes. Everybody, it's a, it's a good time. So looking forward to that. So yeah, tweet at me. Let me know what you guys, some of your favorite dishes, some of your recipes. Shoot me some photos. It'd be cool. I'll do the same. Well, what else is going on? Man. The president of the United States is on a tear. Ever since the midterms, he's just really been in rare form. He really has. And he did an interview over the weekend with Chris Wallace over at Fox News. Um, I will, I've been very critical of Fox, but there are real solid journalists there. I usually do add that caveat. And Chris Wallace is one of them. He's a tough interview interviewer. Some of you may not know, but his dad was Mike was Mike Wallace. Rest in peace. He's he's passed away. But Mike Wallace was one of the premier interviewers on 60 Minutes for decades. He's been around forever. Mike Wallace and Chris Wallace is his son. Followed in his tradition of um, being a, a solid interviewer, and it was I think the first time Trump had ever been on Fox News Sunday because he knows Chris Wallace is a tough interviewer. He doesn't let him get away with any anything really. <clears throat> and he didn't this time. And there were a bunch of things in this interview that made news. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of them. The biggest one was his comments about Admiral Bill McRaven. Admiral Bill McRaven is a war hero. He is a retired Navy SEAL. He was also the commander of the Osama bin Laden raid. Yeah, the raid that killed the bastard behind 9-11. Admiral McRaven commanded that mission 
Donald Trump attacked him in this interview because Admiral McRaven had the temerity to criticize Donald Trump for attacking the free press, for his continued attacks, calling the free press the enemy of the people. Trump claims, oh no, it's just the fake news. Bullshit, okay? He just, the whole fake news stuff and discrediting legitimate journalists and news operations is a tactic, a dangerous one, and a 30-plus-year retired admiral, Navy SEAL, called Trump out on it and said that he felt that Trump's attacks on the free press, quote, was the greatest threat to democracy in his lifetime. That's pretty significant coming from a guy like that, I would think. And Donald Trump, as we know, cannot take criticism. Now, McRaven weighed in also over the summer when Donald Trump was revoking people's security clearances as political retribution for you know people in the intel community who he didn't agree with. And McRaven was like, you know, stop attacking these people. You know, I stand with them. And if he wants to revoke my security clearance too, well, you know, then do it. So McRaven has not been, he's been unafraid to challenge Trump on what's going on because now that he's a private citizen, he can speak out. But Donald Trump, and I encourage anyone who hasn't watched the interview, you should go watch it. It it is so fucking infuriating. I mean, most of Trump's interviews are infuriating, but this one, when he attacks McRaven, it just, it makes me crazy because Donald Trump, is a silver spoon draft dodger. And the audacity of him to be critical of any one of our military men and women and who have served so honorably. How dare he? He is a fucking coward. And he has the audacity to criticize war heroes like John McCain, like the, the you know, McRaven. I mean, the list is long. He went after the, the Khan family, how he treated that that uh, African-American widow whose, whose husband died in Niger. I mean, the, how, for somebody who claims that he's so pro-military, this is not, this is not the way you treat your military. You know, if they're not, if they're not sycophants and props for you, then you criticize them. He, he said, oh, well, he's a Hillary backer. He, he backed Hillary Clinton. And well, why didn't they get them? Why didn't they get Osama bin Laden sooner? He should have gotten them sooner. Are you kidding me? This guy, man, who who was afraid to go to visit a, a, an American battlefield in Europe because it was raining, who couldn't get off his fat ass on, on Veterans Day and go over to uh, Arlington Cemetery to pay respects to our to our our men and women who have given their lives and sacrificed for this country on Veterans Day, and he can't—he couldn't even bother. You've got to be kidding me. I will say in that interview, he actually said that he maybe he should have gone to Arlington, which is a shocker, okay, because Trump never admits fault or anything. So you know that the criticism he's gotten for how he behaved in Europe and for skipping that, that didn't go along with his brand of being Mr. Military. So he knows... But then he turns around and he does and he says this about Admiral McRaven. And, you know, so many people have come out in defense of of him, of Admiral uh, McRaven, because it it was just so egregious, this attack. And I'm glad to see that. 
you know, Stanley McChrystal, who was a general that served in the Obama administration, he, he was <laughs> actually, that was, uh, he was unceremoniously kind of fired from leading the troops in Afghanistan because he was critical of the way the Obama administration was prosecuting the war over there. And he was very outspoken about it and he kind of got the boot, but that's another story. But McChrystal, um, he, he, he was on TV recently, uh, in responding to this McRaven Trump feud. And he said, you know, the military, we have a crisis in leadership in this country and that the military needs to have confidence in their leaders values. Yeah. No kidding. You know, I mean, the, the, the troops being sent to the border, that doesn't help the situation. I had uh, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling on in last week's episode. Um, if you haven't heard it, you should check it out. He talked about the same thing, like, what are we doing sending active troops to the border? They're not, they know the mission's bullshit. And that does terrible, that's terrible for morale. You never want your military to question why they're there. If they believe in the mission, they know that what they're doing is, you know, for the country, you know, we have the best military in the world. But when you start using them as political props and just sending them places that they shouldn't be, that's very reminiscent of Vietnam, you know, politicizing the military. Yeah, we do it in other ways, but not when it comes to missions. It's just, it's not, it's not good. But, you know, Donald Trump really needs to shut up and stop this crap about how he knows more than the generals and, and, <laughs> This guy, man, he's infuriating. And this whole thing about how how much he loves the military, it's a facade. He's a, It's a facade. He loves the idea of having the most powerful military in the world at his command, which in my opinion is a disgrace. He doesn't deserve to be commander-in-chief. He's such a despicable human being the way he behaves. He has no honor. He's a coward and a draft dodger. Bone spurs. He doesn't even know what foot he had, what, what, which, which foot it was. It was a deferment that he was able to get that a lot of people that had money back during Vietnam were able to, to, to skirt out of their service by getting wacky doctors to sign off on medical deferments. And, you know, they got out of serving. They got out of being in the draft. And Donald Trump was one of them. He's a coward. Oh, how dare he? So shame on him for that. And shame on the Republicans. We're going to talk about, I talk about this a little bit too, but shame on the Republicans for not <laughs> criticizing Trump for this. I mean, not enough of them. The, the GOP account on Twitter, which is basically the Republican National Committee, the official RNC Twitter account actually backed Trump up on his criticism of McRaven. What the hell happened to Republicans? Could you imagine if Barack Obama had done this? I mean, I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record with that, but it's just astonishing to me. It's just astonishing how Republicans have just tucked their tails between their legs and decided to just cower because they're afraid of, of, of what Trump's going to say or tweet at them if they hold him accountable. It telling you, uh, people are going to start to wake up. The midterms, our suburban areas have woken up and um, we're just not, we, we just can't let this stand. Character and integrity matter, especially when you have the importance of the role, the important role of being commander in chief. And this is how you treat the military. 
infuriating. Infuriating. Another part of the the interview on Fox, he talked about um, you know this the journal the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. This has been an ongoing story now, where we pretty much know that he was horribly murdered in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. He was dismembered and his body was disposed of. And the CIA has concluded with pretty, pretty strong confidence that the Saudi royal, uh, Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salam, MBS, Salman, MBS and moving forward because it's a mouthful, was behind it. Well, no shit. Okay, that's not really a shocker. But more and more evidence has come out there. The, the, the Turks have tapes now of, of this whole thing, this gruesome murder. It's horrible. And it, we saw video, you know, surveillance video of they had body doubles. They had these people coming in that had you know, bone saws and, uh, you know, all kinds of crap. I mean, it was pretty, it was a pretty elaborate operation. They lured this guy in. They have communications that were intercepted where it's pretty certain that MBS was involved. Trump still doesn't want to hear it. Yeah, we sanctioned some Saudis, but they changed the story like five times. And um, Trump is still like, well, we don't know for sure. We're not sure. (sighs) We're pretty sure, buddy. Okay, so what does it say about your intel community? You don't believe them when it has to do with someone who you like because Jared Kushner's up MBS's ass because they're buddies. So you don't want to believe it because there's business interests involved. Come on. It's just, it's, um, it's infuriating. <laughs> Again, either you trust your intelligence community or you don't. You know, this is a problem. It's a very complicated relationship. We, I talk about this a little bit with David Priest in the upcoming interview because um, he worked in the Near East desk when he was in the CIA. Uh, we talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia too. But So Trump is still in denial about this. And, you know, it's, it's, everything is transactional with him. And so, you know, the United States, people look to us as a moral authority, and we are losing that. That's diminishing around the world if we do not stand up against people who violate human rights like this, who are murdering, murdering journalists like this. Um, it sends a terrible message. And then when there's a vacuum, a moral authority in the world, I tell you a lot of ugliness will fill that vacuum. And... Um, I don't want to know what that looks like. The United people can't de- depend on the United States to stand up for what's right, but that's quickly happening under the Trump administration. You know, unless it's a transactional relationship, he doesn't care. It doesn't matter. You know, we have weapon systems we're selling to them, and they're, you know, oil, and it's bigger than that. We have to be able to stand up. We used to. What else? Oh, so. Chris Wallace challenged him on the fact that it looks like it was, in fact, a blue wave in the midterms. At first, people thought, well, they only lost 20-something seats. And, well, we're up to 36, folks. All the votes weren't done counting on, on election night. And places like Orange County, California, completely blue now. That was Reagan country, Nixon country. It hasn't been Democrat in 40 years. My home state of New Jersey, all blue except for one seat, a bunch of, you know, I've talked about this already, a bunch of suburban red state areas went blue. And places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, 
You lost governor's races. They lost Senate races there. Those three states were key, the keys to why Trump won the Electoral College. And he didn't do too, Republicans did not do too well there. So Chris Wallace went to ask him, so, you know, what do you think about it? And Trump, oh no, I won the Senate. Chris Wallace couldn't even get the question out, (laughs) but I won the Senate. First of all, A, you did not win the Senate. The Republican senators won the Senate, but everything to Trump is, you know, it's about him. And so, you know, I won the Senate. Well, I'm telling you, I've been in politics for 25 years. Never, ever has it not been a big deal to lose the House of Representatives. It's a big deal. And we're approaching, by the time this airs, we may have found out that there were 40 seats won by Democrats. That's a wave. No, it's not 63 that Republicans won in 2010 against when Obama was in office, but 40 seats, I believe, is the most, I think even 36 is the most that Democrats have have won in decades. So it's a big deal because the Senate, um, I'm sorry, House committee chairman can subpoena this president and subpoena different officials in the Trump administration in investigations and oversight capacities. And if the administration doesn't comply, they can be sued and it can go to the Supreme Court. And we have a crisis, a constitutional crisis. So Trump is in in for a world of hurt what the House can do. Now, as far as legislation, they're not going to be able to do much. They're only one half of one third of the government. But the oversight, the oversight capacity and, and responsibilities that the Republicans advocated by giving Trump cover for the last two years, that's out the window. So yeah, he still has the Senate. Yes, the Senate can still run cover for him, but he has a House now to compete with. And if he, 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 the whole thing, uh, he took credit for the Senate, but then he didn't take, he didn't take any responsibility for the Republican losses in the House. It was a direct repudiation of Trump. <laughs> but no, 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 no. Well, I wasn't on the ballot. And people tell me, sir, and that whole sir thing again, this is made up. But people tell me, sir, I will, I'll never vote unless you're on the ballot. Yeah, okay. This is what he tells himself in his own mind because he's such a fucking narcissist. It's insane. And people won't even vote unless he's on the ballot. Well, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> you can't take credit for the Senate, but then say it had nothing to do with you in the House. I mean... This guy is just unreal, unreal, unreal. And then we, oh, speaking of, I'm, uh, anybody see this over the weekend when Trump was in California visiting the, the wildfire disaster zones and he made this absolutely asinine statement about how Finland is a forest country and that they figured out how to minimize forest fires by raking the floor of their forests. What? Am I the only one that was like, what? Raking the floor. First of all, who calls the, flo- the, 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 the ground in the forest the floor? Raking forests? Finland is a fraction of the size of California. The climate is completely different. It rains like half the year there. It's a whole different, completely different climate. And it, believe me, what they do is more than raking. What an asinine statement. This guy, I mean, he screwed up the name of Paradise California, calling it Pleasure California. I mean, he, 
it's just it, it never ends with him but the 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 finish have a sense of humor and <laughs> you can see all these memes on facebook of of people's with pictures with their rakes stuff that they're doing with them um in in spirit of this ridiculous comment by the way the president of Finland said that he has no recollection of ever having this conversation with Trump. Trump claimed that when he was in Europe last weekend, he had this conversation with the president of Finland about, I think it's a president there. Is it a prime minister? I don't know. But anyway, the head of Finland. And he claims that he, um, he's like, I, I have no recollection of this conversation about rakes and forest wars. So Trump made that shit up again, too. It, it, unbelievable unbelievable at the end of the program um speaking of california it's still a awful disaster my heart just it breaks for so many people impacted at the end of the show um i'm going to list some charities and ways to help our fellow americans out there in california that have suffered just such awful tragedy going into the holidays especially it's just we need to have compassion and, and help where we can because that's it's just really awful and um, the images and, and just the way people have, have come together in this time of loss, it's, um, it's heartbreaking. But they will rebuild. And um, at the end of the, end of, end of the episode today, I'll um, talk about how people can, can help them. Um, another thing, uh, I saw a screening of the new Roger Ailes documentary coming out called Divide and Conquer. Wow. If you get a chance to see that when it comes out, I don't know if it's going to theaters or coming on Netflix because um, I, I had a private screening opportunity with of it. But holy shit, man. I always knew that Roger Ailes was kind of a bastard, but he was always looked at as a, as a communications television genius. But I had no idea it was as bad as it was. I mean, Rod, for those who don't know, Roger Ailes was the mastermind behind Fox News. He basically created Fox News. Rupert Murdoch, the Murdochs who own the parent company of Fox News, gazillionaires, very powerful media moguls. Um, Rupert Murdoch and his sons now, as he's transitioning power, because Rupert's older, but he owns the Wall Street Journal, you know, New York Post, Fox News, uh, 21st Century Fox Movies, like mega, mega powerful guy. He he financed Fox News and Roger Ailes created it. And, you know, and it, and it talks about basically Roger Ailes' story, how he got there. He was behind Nixon. He helped Nixon out with his, with his, um, television image, helped him get elected back in 1968. He just really understood the power of television as a medium for politics. He was an advisor to Reagan, to Bush. I mean, he was, he had his hands in a lot of things. Um, and it was just really fascinating how Roger Ailes manipulated the lowest common denominator in Americans through television to get them riled up about stuff. Very interesting. And then obviously we know that he fell from grace uh, with all the sexual harassment suits against him at Fox and they ended up booting him out of there in the summer of 2016 in the middle of the conventions, by the way actually have a story to tell about that. So um, during the conventions in 2016, 
I received a direct message on Twitter from Megyn Kelly, who at the time was still at Fox and she was the number one anchor. And she had uh, sent me a couple messages during the election um, commending me for my appearances on CNN, telling me she was a fan of mine, which I really appreciated because I actually really like Megyn Kelly. Um, and I'm, I'm sad for how things went down with her at NBC. And I don't think that she's a horrible person. I don't think she's a racist. I just think that there were some unfortunate comments made. And I'm sure people will disagree with me on that. But my experience with Megan is that she's an honest person. She's down to earth. She is, um, she, she was a hard worker, get where she was, where she was. And she really wanted to, she believed in, in elevating other strong, smart women. And she considered me to be one of those. So she invited me to have, um, and I wish her the best, by the way, you know, um, it's an unfortunate situation, but anyway, um, in an unintentable one too, I think that NBC set her up to fail in a lot of ways, but anyway, that's on another note. So Megan Kelly sends me this direct message and ask, invites me to a private lunch with her during the convention. She wanted to just talk to me cause she was a fan. And I was thrilled. So this is 2016 during the Republican convention in Cleveland. So we have this private lunch. We spend two hours. This is in the middle of all the shit going down with Roger Ailes. All the stories are starting to come out. There's rumors about what might happen. And a a bunch of women started to come forward. And people were wondering, where does Megyn Kelly stand on this? Was she also sexually harassed by Ailes? Did he proposition her? What's happening? And... Uh, we had a great lunch. We talked about all kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, she she wanted to lure me over to Fox. This is obviously before she jumped ship, <laughs> before Trump got elected. And, you know, I said, I appreciate it. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And I considered it. But clearly it was not the place for me or her. But after that two-hour luncheon, the next day, the news broke about Megyn Kelly telling the private imbe- the private law firm that was hired to investigate the Ailes accusations that she too had in fact been harassed by Ailes and propositioned. And that ultimately took Roger Ailes down. I was like, wow. So watching that and thinking like of all the places she could have been or who she could have spent time with at that moment, she chose to spend two hours with me having lunch um, meanwhile, this was coming down with Pike. I thought that was fascinating. And I, I kind of was in the middle of that a little bit. Who knew? Who knew? So anyway, when Divide and Conquer comes out, I suggest you, you guys check it out. It's really fascinating. And you see kind of the parallels on how Donald Trump came to be and how Fox News played a role in that. Starting back in 2011, at least. Roger Ailes and Donald Trump were buddies. And there's a line in the movie where he says that he still has to pick a president. How about that? (laughs) Hey guys, as we transition into the holiday season, this is the time when we start thinking about giving and sharing. Sometimes the best gift that you can give someone is an opportunity that could potentially change their lives. That's why our friends at Transatlantic Real Estate have created an investment opportunity for the everyday investor. It involves legal marijuana and crowdfunding. Now, we all know that legal marijuana 
has created one of the fastest growing industries in the country. Yes, pun intended. We also know that crowdfunding makes it easy to be an early investor of an opportunity. It's really a no-brainer, but it gets even better. Transatlantic real estate is different, and they have a business model that is simple to understand. They buy land that supports marijuana grow operations and then lease it to licensed, high-paying tenants. So did you get that? You are investing in the landlord of a licensed marijuana farm in a high-growth market, and for a limited time, you can invest as little as $300 up to $10,000 before the company goes public. Now, here's another tip. You must complete and confirm your application to participate. So, be sure to complete the process. Don't spend all your money over the holidays and end up with empty pockets. Instead, get a return on your investment. You can also consider making an investment for someone special as a gift. Now, how's that for a holiday gift? You're welcome. Now, to get started, go to MarijuanaStock.org. That's MarijuanaStock.org. Get in the game. Do it now. I am looking forward to introducing my guest for this week, David Priest, who uh, wrote this really fascinating book with this provocative title called How to Get Rid of a President. David Priest is a writer and speaker on the presidency and national security, who this month was recently named the chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute, which also publishes the Lawfare blog. He's a former intelligence officer, manager and briefer at the CIA, and he was also Robert Mueller's daily intelligence briefer for more than a year while he served at the CIA. He also has a PhD from Duke, and his new book is How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. And David Priest joins me on Honestly Speaking today. So I'm so happy to have with me David Priest today, joining me on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Um, He's written a fascinating book that I've read most of. I haven't gotten through all of it, but it is a great, it's an easy read and it's called How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable or Unfit Chief Executives. Um, And given his his experience as former CIA and in, in that world, what better person to have given what's going on in the world today than Mr. Priest. Welcome. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to join you, Tara. So uh, it would be remiss of me, given that you were former CIA, Mm -hmm. not to talk about your reaction to this recent dust up between the president and Admiral McRaven, who was the Navy SEAL commander who led the raid to capture and kill Osama bin Laden. And recently over the weekend, uh, Donald Trump did an interview on Fox News with Chris Wallace where he attacked Admiral McRaven by claiming that he's a Hillary supporter and that basically implying he was a political hack and that he wished that they, the Navy SEALs had gotten bin Laden sooner. <laughs> what is yeah. your reaction to that? It, it would be laughable if we didn't know that some small segment of the American population actually w- would believe that or take that as worth listening to. It's it's so far off the target. Admiral McRaven, and, and I do not know him personally, 
but he is one of the best respected senior military leaders of his generation. Everyone I know who does know him speaks of him in the kinds of terms that, that you reserve for people of high integrity and character. He is about the least political person you can imagine in, in a position like that where he is in a public position now. The only thing he has done that is perceived as political is reacting to the president's own politicization of security clearances by speaking out and saying, that's not okay. I guess in, in Donald Trump world, that means you must be a Hillary Clinton supporter and a partisan hack. Far from it. It says a lot more about Mr. Trump than it does about Admiral McRaven. Absolutely. And for those who don't know, Admiral McRaven uh, spoke out publicly, I believe it was over Twitter, uh, last August when Trump was on his rampage taking away security clearances from po uh, political opponents who he perceived as political opponents, like the former CIA director, um, the former national, uh, the director of national intelligence, James Clapper. He, you know, Trump was on this rampage and, and Admiral McRaven felt so compelled to speak up because he felt that this was just such an it was an affront to the service not only of these people but just of just the way a president should behave and he said that he would be glad to have his security clearance revoked if it meant standing up for the their rights and and the constitution against what Donald Trump was doing so i think that's kind of what got under Trump's skin and then he cho chooses to attack him it's just a long list of people he's disrespected in not only in the military, but in our service to our country and in the intelligence community. Yet he claims that he's no one's been more supportive of, of our military. I, I it's the irony of it isn't lost on me. Right. And he's playing. Uh, honestly, I think he's playing active duty servicemen and women. He's playing former uh, public servants as as fools. And in my experience across the board, they are not. You cannot go out and say, I am the greatest supporter of you ever and try to say things with a loud voice and suddenly appear strong when your policies are actually not doing the best job for national security. People, people are smart enough to see through that. So I don't think he's, he's fooling most people. I, I, I think it's more self-satisfaction of doing this. Some, some feeling of lashing out makes him feel better about the fact that people who are more honorable than he will ever be are mm -hmm. simply not going into line with him. That's for sure. How did you feel as a former CIA guy when he went to the CIA during his first inaugural oh, weekend no. and gave that speech? Uh, horrible. Um, for me, and I, I can't speak for anybody else currently at CIA uh, or former CIA officers, but for me, I know, I know what I did at least once a year is I went to the Memorial Wall in the CIA lobby and I would have a moment of silence thinking about those who had worked in positions like mine before me, who had paid the ultimate sacrifice to preserve and defend the Constitution of the United States. And that that space is a very special space. It is, in a sense, an equivalent of an Arlington National Cemetery for CIA officers. And when I saw that there was a speech in front of the wall, that's not unprecedented. There have been other politicians who have come to CIA and given speeches in that lobby. But to my recollection, they were always speeches of honor. They were always speeches of being in that special space, uh, honoring the, the sacrifices people had made, not a political rally. And to me, that was that was a, a gut punch. That That was a moment that was hard to take. Of course, that was very early in the administration. I hope that it was 
an aberration that even though it was a continuation of what we had seen <laughs> yes. in the campaign, Unfortunately. I was still I was still hoping that there was a a growth chart that we would be seeing. And unfortunately, uh, that did not happen. Yeah, I was pretty horrified by that. And um, it, it was just, it just laid the foundation for what was soon to come that, that, that this something that many of us never Trumpers like myself, who warned that this guy is never going to change. The presidency is not going to change him. He is who he is. Um, between that, the crowd size argument, you know, Spicer coming out like in hysterics, claiming right. that the crowd was <laughs> historic. Right. Then the then the disrespect of our CIA officer. I mean, it was quite the shit show already. And it, it was, was. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it feeds into something. I think uh, Mike Hayden, whom whom I also know and respect greatly, has put as as eloquently as anybody, which is it's an assault on intelligence in in the wider sense, not on the intelligence community, but it's an assault on the intelligence of the American people. And it's a, it's an assault on truth. And you take all those things together. And it's just a fundamentally way a fundamentally different way of looking at the world and of interacting with the American public than we've ever had before. It's the idea of if I say it, it is true to me. Therefore, we will double down and pretend that it is actually true. And that just isn't the way the world works. You can twist perceptions if you want. But reality stays the same. Right. And as a, as someone who has a PhD in political science like you do from Duke, I'm sure there are plenty of historical references that you think of where that hasn't ended well when that kind of <laughs> <laughs> where that kind of approach to <laughs> governing has been applied. Um, you're, you're right. I mean, and this yeah. is something that has disturbed and again, I won't speak for other former CIA officers and other members of the intelligence community. But there are many of us who, regardless of our political beliefs coming into this administration, look around and see some of the dynamics going on that, that we've seen overseas in the countries we used to study and we used to try to understand to help the American government best get around national security problems. We see some of those same dynamics and rarely does it end well when a leader takes the population down a, a very dark and negative course like this targeting populations that are at risk. Uh, this is a slippery slide towards some conditions that we never want to get into as a country. Uh, in, indeed, which is why I think it's so important for people like you who, and others who have expertise in this area who really don't have a political agenda other than as a good citizen to inform people about what's going on and why they should care. Um, and you do a great job of that in, in your book. We're going to talk about that in a, in a little bit. Um, speaking of your time at the CIA... And this just is the whole idea around, well, you know, how come, uh, you know, McRaven didn't grab uh, bin Laden sooner? And, uh, you know, former acting CIA director Mike Morrell, he made the point, A, the CIA is the one who finds and searches and, and, and the Navy SEALs are the ones who go and get them. So the president yep. isn't even correct on that criticism. But during your time at the CIA, you know, you were there pre 9-11 um, when Osama bin Laden was still kind of this shadowy figure that we were paying attention to, um, but n not really, I think some underestimated how uh, mm -hmm. impactful he would end up being. But talk a little bit about what your interaction was at that time. Yeah, we were we were tracking bin Laden in the in the late 90s when I started at, at CIA. So before well before 9-11 back in the Clinton administration, eyes were on bin Laden and we were following his network and all of that. We knew something was happening in the summer of 2001. I think the 9-11 Commission report is brilliant in, in this way. It actually laid out very well 
what was going on in the community and the fact that there was great concern in the Intel community. But there's the same parallel for what you just mentioned, which is the raid that actually got bin Laden, which is the intelligence community's job is to collect information, to process that information, to vet that information, to analyze that information, put it all together into a format that the customers, as we call them, can use. The customers are the policymakers. The customers are not intelligence leaders because they don't make the ultimate political decisions. Those, those are made by elected officials and those who serve them. And in the time building up to 9-11, it was very clear to those of us working counterterrorism. George Tenet has written eloquently about this. The lights were blinking red. We knew there was going to be a major attack, and we were telling policymakers this. But I also feel for the policymakers because they didn't know where it was coming or when it was coming. We did not have that specificity. We did warn that it could be in the United States, but it wasn't as if we were saying every day, it's going to be an attack in New York, in Washington, using planes. We just did not have that kind of intelligence. But it was up to the policymakers what to do about it. Of course, 9-11 happens. Everyone who's working counterterrorism stays in counterterrorism. So I continued working the, the bin Laden and counterterrorism issues after that and ended up translating that into a job where I briefed the president's daily brief to one of the few people that the president allows to receive it. In this case, for me, it was the attorney general of the United States, a guy named John Ashcroft, mm -hmm. and the then FBI director, a guy named Bob Mueller that no one's heard from Never since. Heard of. wonder Who's what that? he's up to. Yeah. <laughs> Never yeah. heard of so, him. So that continued the intense focus. And I can tell you, it was a very intense focus on finding everyone who was responsible for the murder of roughly 3,000 American citizens and citizens of other countries that day. And it was relentless, but Michael Morrell nailed it. It was our effort to find all the information we could and feed that information to the president, to other senior political officials, to senior military officials who then had the decisions to make about what to do about them in certain cases. Similar parallel for the McRaven case. Admiral McRaven did his job and did it well when he was given a job to do. Whether they should have targeted facilities in Pakistan randomly without having the best intelligence available years before, well, that would be a political decision. And thankfully, I think we made the right decision, which is going after bin Laden when we had enough evidence to feel that it was a likelihood that we got him. For speaking as someone who actually had firsthand literally interaction with the presidential daily briefings. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you understand the importance of that document and the importance of a president who reads them and mm -hmm. takes them seriously. How did you feel when you found out that President Trump doesn't really read his presidential daily briefings because they're, they were too long and he wanted them con, you know, uh, condensed to like a card and that Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, who has mm -hmm. zero experience in any of these things, who's simply in a nepotism job, was the one who is primarily reading these PDBs? Yeah, there are two parts to this. And my first book, The President's Book of Secrets, was the history of the president's daily brief for which I interviewed at the time all of the living former presidents, vice presidents, CIA directors to get that story of how it has been used over over time. And it's varied more than I thought. There have been ebbs and flows in it. There is the daily printed document, the president's daily brief that is taken by hand to a handful of people in Washington to to read along with the president. But there's also oral briefings that often go along with it. In the old days, didn't happen that much. It was mostly just presidents and their advisors reading the document. In the modern day, 
almost everybody gets a briefing. Now, in Trump's case, it's not surprising to me that he's not interested in the written document. Why? Because he's been very open about the fact that he doesn't like to read. I assume he can read, but he doesn't <laughs> like to read. He even said, I think it was an interview with Axios early in the administration, he said, look, I don't like somebody telling me over and over again in long documents. I want bullet points. Well, the job of the intelligence community is to adapt to the president, not the other way around. So it would not surprise me if the president's daily brief now was in bullet points and gave him absolute bottom line conclusions without a lot of the detail and background that some of our other presidents have wanted. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if it looks very different in print. But here's the thing that matters, Tara, is he is actually still taking oral briefings, usually at least once or twice a week. This is something most people would not have predicted back on Inauguration Day after his denigration of the intelligence community in the campaign, comparing intelligence officers to Nazis, doing that debacle in front of the Memorial Wall at CIA headquarters. We would have thought that this relationship, the one relationship in the U.S. government where the job of the people briefing the president is to tell him the truth, is to tell him what he may not want to hear, but what he needs to hear. This was the most vulnerable relationship. And yet somehow it is still working. I give high credit to the briefers who are going in to see him, to the people who are preparing the briefing, to the intelligence community leaders who are somehow managing this relationship in a way that probably the most difficult commander in chief in history to give intelligence to is still getting some of it, even if it is only orally briefed quick hits rather than an in-depth document. It's more than many people thought he would still be getting at this point. Well, I think that's a testament to the professionalism of our intelligence community and why it's so frustrating for a lot of us to hear the president denigrate them as often as he does when he's got a you know, be in his bonnet about whatever when he has a perceived slight. Um, just can you just tell people briefly what the presidential daily briefing consists of so that because most, you know, a lot of folks who listen to this podcast, they're not inside the Beltway folks or they don't work in government. So they're like, OK, what what is this? What is this? What is a PDB and why is it so important? Sure. The for most of American history, presidents did not get personally tailored intelligence to them. You had presidents in wartime who basically relied on what their diplomats would send in from foreign capitals, and they had to analyze it themselves. But for the last 60 plus years, we've had the intelligence community that has provided a daily working document to the president. Uh, it's gone by different names, but since Lyndon Johnson, it's been called the president's daily brief. And it's a short document because it's in the name. It's brief. Right. It, is, it is given only to the president and those whom the president designates as recipients which has been as small as two people and as large as dozens of people, depending on the president and how they want to use the information. Um, but it is every working day. And it contains the best analysis and assessments that intelligence officers can come up with about what is going on around the world. And that can be something like Brexit, where there is plenty of public information about how the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union and how that's going to play out but it's mostly analysis of open source information. But there can be right next to it, the very next article in the president's daily brief might be an analysis of some weapons technology that Russia or China is coming up with that literally no one outside of those countries knows about except for our spies who have uncovered it. So it is a mix of high level analysis of issues that affect US national security and foreign policy 
and a window into what's going on that will help the president and others strategically plan to keep the United States ahead of so we don't have a crisis or a war situation if we can avert it earlier. So are things as high level as special access programs, which are like the top, top secret stuff, are these types of updates and things included in the presidential daily briefing? There is nothing that cannot go into the president's daily brief. It is targeted for the commander in chief and for those few people that he, he allows to see it. Theoretically, anything can go in there. The names of intelligence sources, which is some of the most tightly protected information, well beyond the just the top secret classification that many people have. There are compartments that only some people who have that clearance can see it because it's so sensitive. You can have some technological information, all kinds of things that are very tightly held. However, that's not necessary for the president most of the time. Why would the president need to know the name of the top source we have in any country that's giving us information. So traditionally that hasn't been included, even though it can be. What that means for the president's daily brief briefers, the job that I had for a while, is we had to get to know our customers. And I had to know, in the case of Bob Mueller, I had to know what his job required. And I guarantee you his job did not require knowing the most sensitive aspects of our economic analysis of Latin America. That's that's just not the FBI director's job after (laughs) 9-11. But damn it, he needed to know some of the most detailed uh, explanations and analysis we had of what was going on within Al Qaeda after 9-11. That was his job. So I had to supplement the president's daily brief with other intelligence information that I knew he needed from any compartment that was necessary. I also had to know what to leave out because he had no time on his schedule to waste. And we had to target that briefing to what he needed to know that very day. Well, the reason why I'm placing so much emphasis on this is because it concerns me greatly that the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, Mm -hmm. who has significant financial troubles with his personal um, business and his family real estate business and his relationship with um, MBS, the crown prince over there in Saudi Arabia, uh, which leads me to my my next line of questioning to you about what's you know how how you feel the the president has reacted to the Khashoggi killing in mm. Saudi Arabia, but I I wonder why it's necessary for Jared Kushner to be because it's been widely reported that he is, has access to and reads the presidential daily briefing on a regular basis and did sure. so uh, pretty early on when he was forging this relationship with MBS and traveled secretly over there to Saudi Arabia in 2017. We still don't know what they talked about or what. And then there was a very interesting series of events that happened in Saudi Arabia. And since you mentioned that there are, you know, there is intelligence information. Sometimes there is the name of an, uh, you know, operation, an operations uh, covert operator or things like that. And it just made me wonder, you know, um, does this have any relationship to, you know, you don't have to say yes or no, but it makes observers wonder, does this level of information that's going through Kushner about what's happening from our intelligence community, what's happening in Saudi Arabia and what we know about MBS, is that having an impact on the president's lack of reaction, I think, appropriate reaction to the killing of Khashoggi and the role that the crown prince has played? Right. Well, first a caveat, and then I'll give you the bad news and the, and the good news. So first, first the caveat, which is 
I don't have access to this intelligence about what's going on in Saudi Arabia and who ordered the killing or not. And I haven't had access to intelligence like that in a long time. So this is this is based on what I'm seeing sure. out there. The let's go with the good news. The good news is that when this became a dust up over Jared Kushner modifying his security forms 17 billion times because he just kept forgetting foreign contacts and he kept forgetting all these things that everyone who applies for a security clearance has to be honest about. Eventually, it, I believe the outcome of that from the reporting I saw was that he was no longer getting the president's daily brief uh, as an advisor to the president. That's, I guess, the good news in a way. The system worked. There was, uh, it was made known that there were some difficulties and there was a reaction. The bad news is that the president can give intelligence to whoever right. he wants. That's right. He can. He has ultimate classification authority. All classification authority in the U.S. government derives from the president in his role as commander in chief. Therefore, he also has ultimate declassification authority. If the president says something that is classified, it is instantly declassified uh, if he deems it so. He can also decide who gets to see what kinds of intelligence. If Jared Kushner is not getting a personal daily briefer every day to deliver this PDB to him, he can still walk into daddy-in-law's office and pick up whatever Donald Trump remembers from the conversation he just had with his briefer, or he can talk to other officials and get that. If the president orders it, that is our system. So I, don't, I do not think that Jared Kushner, if he is still advising the president on major foreign policy issues, I don't think he is out of the loop on top-level mm -hmm. intelligence. I think he's still getting it. How that relates to the current crisis, what a complex vortex we have of both U.S. national interests and of concerns about this presidency. You've got an ally who has been a stalwart ally for many, many years on many fronts, but has also had a lot of issues relating to continuing connections to terrorist groups. Mm -hmm. You've got a government that has been helpful against some of the United States enemies, such as Iran, and certainly against Iraq back in the time of Saddam Hussein, but yet has also been seeing its own interests and has been flirting with some countries that we would not want them to. So there's all that geopolitical stuff going on. It's fair to say this is like the actual, it's a complicated relationship between the U.S. Oh, and Saudi Arabia. It <laughs> is. Stemming any, back, you know, 75 years. Absolutely. And anybody who says there's one simple answer doesn't understand the depth of U.S. interests that, that affect this. So just on the geopolitical front, it's a very complicated issue. And it plays into the longstanding issue in American foreign policy for a long time about core U.S. interests independent of human rights and violations of human rights. Do you overlook some violations of human rights because you need that relationship to defend greater interests? Well, those things are clashing yet again. That clash will never go away. This is just a very uh, hard example of it, given what happened. But it also plays into some of the issues with this administration. The American people, mediated by the Electoral College system, knowingly put into office someone who had not only ignorance of the institutions and norms of American government, but apparently a disdain for them. And that was, I think, a conscious choice by most people. I don't think it's a surprise to the voters who put Trump into office that he was different than previous politicians. Well, they that say was a, so. That was they a bug, say it all the, the time. Right. They yeah. say it all the time. Well, he's not your typical politician. We wanted a disruptor. We wanted someone to shake it up. And what and, do you get when you get that? You yeah. get somebody who has financial conflicts of interests, someone who does not release tax forms, someone who decides to bring in a daughter and a son-in-law into the White House, violating the spirit, if not the letter, 
of the legislation that was passed after Bobby Kennedy was attorney general for John Kennedy. So all of these norms and institutions that we've, in a sense, taken for granted for decades were blown out the window, and I think by a conscious choice of many American voters. You put that as an overlay on top of the complicated geopolitical situation, it's no surprise to me that this is going to be a difficult story to play out. There's no easy answer anyway. There's certainly no easy answer when you've got that domestic political situation on top of it. Well, that is a good segue into um, what's going on with Trump post midterms, Mm -hmm. because um, his behavior, I mean, he's been consistently erratic. It's just a it's just a matter of degree, usually each week. And since the midterms, um, Trump has really ratcheted it up the crazy. And one of the things that he's done is he fired the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, which wasn't quite a surprise. We knew that Jeff Sessions was a dead man walking for quite some time. But the person he installed in place of Jeff Sessions as the acting attorney general, this Matthew Whitaker, who is a political lackey, Mm -hmm. um, has really begun to rattle the not only the intelligence community, but the federal law enforcement community, uh, constitutional lawyers, people are wondering, are we on a slippery slope to a constitutional right. crisis here with this? Because Whitaker was put there to take out the Mueller investigation, plain and simple. Any denial on that, people are just being naive. What was your reaction to that? And I know that you're also in, um, the CEO of Lawfare Blog, who I, I read all the time. You guys have such excellent analysis over there. Um, I encourage my listeners to check out Lawfare Blog. Um, and there's been a lot of written, a lot written about what's happening here. But what was your reaction to that? And and do you think that we're on a slippery slope to a potential constitutional crisis if Trump tries any funny business with Mueller? Right. The issue with the attorney general, and and this is true across executive departments. Actually, they all have a deputy cabinet secretary, a deputy secretary of state, a deputy secretary of treasury, a deputy attorney general. In the case of the Justice Department. The assumption and the default is if the attorney general is incapacitated for any reason or is removed for some reason or is recused for some reason, that the deputy attorney general in this case is there to do the job. That is what is assumed and that is the natural order of things. And they're Senate confirmed, which is important. Yeah, and they're Senate confirmed, which allows them to execute the, the full powers and duties such that there are of said office, in this case, the attorney general. Now, there are differences there, and it hasn't always worked out that way. Sometimes the deputy in an executive department has a set of conflicts or other issues, and a president can say, you know, while I nominate and get approved a new attorney general, I I will pick someone else to be the the acting. But normally it's another senior official, an undersecretary or someone else, a solicitor general, somebody like that in the Justice Department. In this case, to pick somebody who is a chief of staff, who somebody who was not in an actual senior management position, I mean, a chief of staff, staff, uh, chief of staff is staff. Right. I mean, that, that's that's in the word. They happen right. to be chief of it, but they are staff. Well, Kellyanne um, Conway's husband, George Conway, in his yep. op-ed in The New York Times said that that Matt Whitaker as chief of staff was actually a constitutional nobody. He was a nobody in this line of succession. And this is why there have been lawsuits put down. And this is Lawfare Blog has had people writing about this in the last week or uh, week plus. There have been lawsuits dropped within days of this saying constitutionally, 
this doesn't work. Those have not played out yet, but they will be playing out soon. Normally what you would have, and again, there are so many things we considered normal that are out the window in the last two years. No kidding. Normally what you would have if a president decided to do this with no apparent basis other than avoiding the person, the deputy attorney general, who is already overseeing the Mueller investigation because there, there's no other reason that is on the surface for doing this. Normally when you had this, there would be such a political outcry that out of shame, the president would reverse the decision and do something that is more rational and in line with, if not the law, at least customs and norms. Um, but this president feels no shame. Right. And so it's the, not, the that's pressure, not in his, in his exactly. vocabulary. <laughs> the people coming forward saying, how could you possibly do this? This is not the way the government functions. He says, but I did it. Who's going to stop me? Right. Well, that's where the lawsuits come in. So I say on this issue, I have a big stay tuned button because right now, uh, until we hear otherwise, Matthew Whitaker appears to be the acting attorney general. I am not convinced. I'm not an attorney. I don't know constitutional law. I talk to constitutional law experts all the time, and I go to Lawfare blog to look at what they have to say. But I'm not convinced that this is going to stand until mm -hmm. there is an actual new nominated and confirmed attorney general. I think something's going to change before then. And, you know, you did, um, like I said, what we talked about it earlier, you did work with Robert Mueller yes. uh, considerably back in the day. Right. Um, based off of your experience with Mueller, um, what, what do you think is, you know, everyone, it's just a big mystery because Robert Mueller hasn't said a word. He hasn't said a peep which is what the way it's supposed to be about right. the investigation, about the status update, about where we are, about what he has. Obviously everyone is dying to find out what the hell has he got because you know, we're waiting with bated breath, but mm -hmm. based on your interactions and experience with, with Mueller, do you, how do you, do you think he was prepared for Trump to pull a move like this? I cannot imagine that he was not prepared for this and many other contingencies. That's just the, the thinker he is. He's not somebody who is often surprised. He's not somebody who builds a team around him. And, and let's be honest, uh, it's not him. It is not a Trump versus Mueller cage match. This is rule of law mm -hmm. as supported by many of the finest minds in the Justice Department and FBI. Um, who are looking into the facts. That's what this is. No, 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 David. This yeah. is a witch hunt. It is <laughs> a hoax. This is, uh, there's sounds, no collusion. That sounds, like, <laughs> that sounds like language Richard Nixon was using up until uh, early 1974. Yeah, and so we're going to talk about we know, that. We know minute. what happened there. So with, with, with Bob Mueller, let me tell you, he had many opportunities when I was briefing him every working day for more than a year. He had many opportunities to go out there and grandstand and showboat with the kind of information I was giving him to make the FBI or himself look good. He never did that. He had many opportunities to basically get overwhelmed by the information we were providing him because our, our intelligence efforts went up to 11 and we were giving people like him so much information. And I never had somebody, I briefed some really smart people. I got the chance to interact with people we could truly be proud of as Americans, as both elected officials and government officers. I, I tell you, nobody worked at a higher level than he did at processing both the tactical level, that is the daily facts and drilling down on every little detail, but at the same time, knowing the strategic picture and trying to tie it into the other themes and interests of the United States. Nobody's better prepared to handle the complexity of this, perhaps the most complex investigation in American history, 
than Bob Mueller. I have no doubt that he's going to see it through and conclude this investigation thoroughly, without distraction, with integrity, despite whatever obstacles are put up, because he will have anticipated those and prepared for those. Donald Trump has no idea what he has gotten himself into trying to take on not only Mueller personally, given his his history of integrity and, and just his work ethic and reputation of being, uh, you know, one of the best, um, just taking on this, the, the intelligence community and the institutions behind this. Trump is in for a rude awakening. And now that you he's going to actually have oversight. I mean, I the Demo- Democrats never cease to amaze me in their ability to overstep and screw things up. But um, now that the House is in Democrat control, I don't think Donald Trump has any idea the type of oversight power that that the Congress actually has since Republicans chose to abdicate it for the last two years and give him cover. Um, I just think that's part of partially what's motivating him to act more irrationally than usual and attack these institutions more than usual, because I think he just fears the unknown. Um, I think you're right. And I will say that I believe this is, this is the good times. I think, <laughs> I think it gets worse because he's anticipating that perhaps. Right. And he's lashing out because he, he sees things maybe getting more difficult in January. Suddenly you've got committees across the house of representatives with subpoena power. And I can't imagine how many government officials up to, and including people close to the president are going to be called in to explain and defend some of the things that have been happening over the last two years that the president has generally gotten a blank check on. And even if, even if you happen to be a Trump supporter or a sympathizer for some of Trump's policies, you have to believe that some of the reason that we've survived as a great country is because the founders in their wisdom, and they screwed up in some ways, they had some huge mistakes, but in their wisdom, they came up with a system of checks of balances where naturally different parts of government would provide a a bulwark against the others going too far. In the last two years, Congress has abdicated that duty. Part of Congress, starting in January, ain't going to play that game again. That's right. And that's a great segue to talk about your book. Mm -hmm. Um, How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. In your book, you talk a lot about um, impeachment as one of the mechanisms, right. uh, but the pros and cons of it, the complications of that. And you talk also about the founding fathers and their dilemma when deciding on the role of the executive, how mm-hmm. that was going to look, how do we avoid having another monarch, which was obviously one of their greatest fears after just sure. fighting the British government and being liberated from a monarchy. And in your book, you talk about Benjamin Franklin who was um, contemplating this. And in your book, you say, in a session a couple of weeks later, the esteemed Benjamin Franklin piled on, declaring that critics would have to turn to assassination if impeachment proved unavailable. Elbridge Jerry added his view of impeachment. He said, and this was this stuck with me. He said, yep. quote, a good magistrate will not fear them. A bad <laughs> one ought to be kept in fear of them. Right on. I think that that's something that applies to this president. Because he, unfortunately, is not in fear of it, I don't think, but should be. Talk right. about that. Yeah, the, the, the founders w- were not stupid. They, they knew that they both needed a strong executive, which they didn't have under the government at the time, and that the whole reason they had the revolution was because of a strong executive who was unchecked. Now, what they came up with was a method of the people 
mediated by some institutions, but the people electing a leader and having the chance to actually remove that leader every four years. And that was in itself revolutionary. There was no one else who did it quite that way. And they were taking a big chance that this would work. So they built in an insurance plan. And their insurance plan was, if somebody is so bad or comes to power through corrupt means, that we don't want them in office for four years, that we don't want to wait until the next chance to move them on. Let's go ahead and have something called the impeachment power, where we can accuse them of crimes or impeach them, essentially indict them, and then convict them and remove them from office if those charges can be proven to the satisfaction of two-thirds of the Senate. And they put that in there and debated it, not for long, because they did all of this whole government thing in one summer, and they didn't have time to debate a lot of this, but they decided to put it in there. Now, they also realized that this itself could be abused, that if you made impeachment too easy, then you could basically have a president serving at the whim of the legislature and just become a puppet of Congress. So what they did is they put in three reasons and only three reasons that a president could be impeached. One was treason. And it was defined in such a narrow, specific way, it is almost impossible to imagine it happening in the modern context. It has to be in a condition of wartime. There have to be witnesses, because that's the way they thought of things back then. Then there's bribery. Bribery is pretty straightforward. If it's actual money for a specific act and it can be proven, that's pretty hard to do in a presidential case. But maybe with the emoluments clause, there's a way that could be interpreted that way. The third one was called high crimes and misdemeanors. And nobody knows exactly what that means. He still because don't. it is not well defined. <laughs> still argued it's not a phrase we use in right. modern conversation. So nobody knows what high crimes and misdemeanors actually plays out as. And it wasn't really have, popularly used back then either, right? Not so wasn't not so like, much. Yeah. It had been picked up from some English law. The idea that most constitutional scholars that I talked to about it came up with is they believe that the high part means matters of state. That is, you can have a crime or a misdemeanor. If the president of the United States walks into a CVS and steals some candy, you know, that that is against the law. But the founders didn't want that kind of thing to be removing presidents because that is not a crime against the fabric of the state. That's not why you need protection from a monarch because a monarch or a king is stealing candy. You need it because they're harming society. So that's the high part. For crimes and misdemeanors, well, crimes make sense. Treason is a crime. Bribery is a crime. And they're leaving it open to other crimes. But they explicitly added misdemeanors, which tells me that they certainly didn't want it to be limited to explicit crimes. That's why when the president says no collusion, no collusion, it really doesn't matter. Because on the one hand, the collusion might be criminal conspiracy. So it's a crime. Even if it's not a formal crime, it could still be considered a misdemeanor, a lesser crime against the United States itself. Now, in applying this, Congress has to decide, both the House in deciding whether it meets the standard of a high crime and misdemeanor, and then the Senate in deciding whether to convict the president of any impeachment articles that have been passed by the House. We've grown some as a country in this way, because in the 1860s, Andrew Johnson was impeached by the House and almost convicted by the Senate. One of the impeachment articles, believe it or not, was that he went out, this is the president, that he went out in public and said bad things about Congress. Now, I cannot interpret treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors to mean that you should kick a president out because he said mean things about Congress. In the impeachment articles against Nixon and Clinton, 
you never had anything like that. They focused very specifically on things like abuse of power, obstruction of justice, things that sound a lot like what impeachment articles against Donald Trump could look like. Those definitely meet the constitutional standard of high crimes and misdemeanors. It's just up to senators to decide whether they think it's worth removing the president or not. Well, I'm glad you brought up Andrew Johnson because I think, I don't hear that very often. Yeah, you probably yeah. not. Right. I, I actually don't <laughs> say that very often. Um, but Andrew Johnson plays a central role in the arc of your book because mm-hmm. of him being having the distinction of being the first president ever impeached. He was also quite the bastard. So mm-hmm. um, and and it was interesting to see the way his cabinet members reacted to him and the way Congress reacted to him. And and for those who don't know, Andrew Johnson assumed the presidency after Lincoln was assassinated. He was Lincoln's vice president. And he um, wasn't exactly as friendly to the idea of slaves being freed and making no sure. Lincoln. That's right. He was no Lincoln by any stretch of the imagination. And he was, um, and, and that troubled Lincoln's cabinet and people who were in power. And it was interesting to me because also in your book, you say that you don't have to formally eject someone from the White House if you can undercut their rightful duties of the office. And that was something that um, General Grant and the war secretary at the time, Stanton, actually did to undermine Johnson's worst impulses. I mean, the Congress also, they vetoed Johnson 15 overrode Johnson's vetoes 15 times. Yeah, now, unprecedented imagine, at the right, time. That was not a normal thing. So imagine if our Congress had done something like that. Like, I, I mean, that's what some of us had hoped that Congress would serve as a check and balance to what Trump has done. But just talk a little bit about what they did to, to try to, um, well, to try to minimize the potential damage. They perceived Johnson as a threat to the Absolutely. public. Absolutely. And, There are many ways of removing a president. We've talked about impeachment. We talked about voting them out in four years. They can lose their own party's nomination and not get renominated and therefore get removed from the presidency at the end of their term. There's a number of ways. One of them that I looked at is, well, what if they're not actually physically removed? What if they still have the title of president, but they don't exercise the full powers of the office in in the way that everyone assumes? In a sense, they're removed in place. And that's what Andrew Johnson was eventually after he took office. When he started doing all of these things that people feared could happen, he had opposition, as you mentioned, both from his own cabinet, where they failed to execute some of his orders. General Grant kept doing things in the occupied southern states to protect freed slaves that Johnson had told him not to do. You also had Congress, the political opposition, checking his power, using vetoes in a way they had never been used before which is not as, uh, or using overrides of vetoes in a way they'd never been used before as a way of simply stopping everything the president was trying to do. At one point, they even overrode his veto without reading his reasons why he vetoed it. They just instantly (laughs) did it. Um, They boxed him in pretty tightly. They ended up impeaching him because he violated a law that they had passed that severely restricted one job the president has. They made it illegal for the president to remove one of his cabinet officers. Well, sounds familiar lately. Mm-hmm. We had an attorney general removed. Yep. There could be, leg- now the problem is that legislation was later ruled unconstitutional. But at the time it was in force, Johnson violated it, and they impeached him for it and nearly 
convicted and removed him from office. But frankly, they didn't need to remove him from office because the act of impeachment itself and the bargains that Johnson had to do with senators to not be convicted ended up moderating him just enough that he was a less bad president in the last few months of his term than he had been before that. So it actually worked in that case to some degree. Johnson was never a good president, but he was less of a disaster after that process because he was in a sense removed in place as commander in chief. You also make the point that some cabinet members um, decided to stay on to protect the country from Johnson. That they Sound felt familiar? It, yes, exactly. Yeah. It's just why I'm bringing it up because the parallels are really uncanny. And it is a slippery slope to do that, though, mm-hmm. because you end up defending things that you wouldn't want to defend. I heard somebody raise, I was speaking about the book um, up and down the East Coast last week, and several people raised with me, what do you think about Jim Mattis? What do you think about him trying to say that the deployment yes. of active duty forces near the southern border, they're not actually doing border duty. That's right. All they're doing is getting out of regular training cycles, getting holiday away from their family. Not well, getting combat pay also, by the way. Well, why are they? Why are they doing that with the Secretary of Defense basically saying, yes, sir? And what a lot of people said to me is that they think they understand what he's doing. They think that he's doing that because the reason Jim Mattis is in that office isn't because he wants to prevent some troops from doing something that honestly should not be a lethal assignment in this case. It's a, it's, it's annoying and it's not in the best interests of the military or of the country, but it's, it's not a lethal assignment. Um, he's not in office to protect against that worst case scenario. Perhaps he's in office to prevent against a really worst case scenario involving nuclear weapons, involving a president who refuses to leave the White House when he is convicted and removed by the Senate in an impeachment trial. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Nobody, nobody has talked to Jim Mattis about this, or if they have, they, they're not talking. But that's the person that most people talk about in today's context as echoing what was happening back in the 1860s. And honestly, with some people in the Nixon administration who yes. undermined him while serving him, that maybe there are some people who have the right intentions and they're doing this. The problem, of course, is once you start undermining the president from within, you're violating a norm of faithful service that other presidents in better times are going to need. And do you actually help the situation when the president is violating many of these norms by breaking other norms? That's a real ethical dilemma that these people are facing. Well, that um, I want to talk a little bit about Nixon, because you mm-hmm. also talk about that at great length in your book. And for most people, that's the, the most recent historical yes. reference for anything remotely close to what we're going through now. Um, something that I found fascinating, which I I did not know, was how many of Nixon's staffers actually disobeyed his orders and openly defied direct orders by him because they thought that they were crazy or inappropriate and and took that upon themselves and that Nixon actually told them, gave them some license to do it. Because he was so impulsive and would just spout things off, he would actually give them, say, well, you know, I'm glad you're probably right not to have followed through on that in a couple of days. Like, Mm -hmm. that was insane. But tell the story about what happened with Henry Kissinger. Yeah. I mean, that is pretty remarkable. I mean, we ended up in a DEFCON 3 situation that the president didn't order. Talk about that Henry Kissinger situation. Yeah, Henry Kissinger was in a unique position himself in the Nixon administration. By the end of it, he was both national security advisor 
and he was Secretary of State. So a very powerful position, uh, almost a Nixon whisperer when it came to national security affairs. But what happened is by 1973, Watergate was really heating up. The president, in some cases, was completely obsessed with trying to wind that down, to shut that down. But guess what? The world keeps turning and things keep happening. So in October 1973, there was a Middle East war. Egypt and Israel were going at each other. The United States was, in a sense, getting sucked in. And the Soviet Union didn't like it. And so they started making waves, too. During that crisis, their letter came in from the Soviet premier. And Kissinger got it. He was at the White House. The president was in Florida. He was holed up with some advisors trying to deal with what at that point was the crisis in Watergate with the Saturday Night Massacre and all of that. And he got this letter and Kissinger says, you know what, how are we going to deal with this? Calls down to Florida, talks to his deputy, Brent Scowcroft, who was also on site in Florida. Um, and Kissinger basically asked Scowcroft and Al Haig, the chief of staff at the time, should I wake the president up? And Haig said, no. Scowcroft later on said he couldn't rule out that Nixon was drunk at the time because Nixon was self-medicating quite a bit by this point, dealing right. with the stresses of Watergate. So what did Kissinger do? He ended up leading an overnight meeting in the White House to craft a reply to the Soviet leader, which he sent back in Nixon's name. The military alert rose to DEFCON 3, a defense condition that is actually anticipating possible escalation to nuclear war. And the president was not consulted about either action. Could you imagine that? I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. It takes it takes supreme confidence. And I would add also supreme arrogance to assume that you know what the president would do. Henry Kissinger was not elected president of the United States. It is also completely understandable that he would step in at that point and say, I've worked with him long enough. I know what he would want to do, and he is unable to do it. But frankly, at that point, we had another solution and another chapter I talk about in How to Get Rid of a President, which is declaring the president temporarily disabled. This is the 25th Amendment scenario. The president can declare himself disabled temporarily for surgery. And we've had two presidents who have done that and right. transferred power to a vice president. But there's also a section that allows the president to be removed temporarily against his will. If the president were so indisposed that he could not be woken up to rule on a matter that involved possible escalation to nuclear weapons, this is exactly what the 25th Amendment was in place for. The problem is the 25th Amendment requires a vice president. That is, you cannot temporarily remove the president from power against his will unless the vice president and a majority of the cabinet agree. And there was no vice president. Um, Gerald Ford, I believe, if I have the timing right, was still not uh, installed as vice president yet, or he was close to it. So you get into some technical issues there. It's understandable why Kissinger and others would say, I will take on presidential prerogatives myself to both protect the president and the United States. But what a slippery slope that is. How many people in the U.S. government should be allowed to do that? Because mm -hmm. there are millions of federal employees. And if everybody right. thinks that they know better, which maybe they do, and if everybody thinks that they can act instead of the president, you have chaos and everyone is worse off. Well, Nixon's first chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, talked about that at length because he um, felt that on a lot of occasions that Nixon's decision making was just not correct. And it was um, I don't know how I feel about that.
You know, um, is that a good thing? You know, is that what we see going on with the Trump administration and John Kelly? You know, a lot of people question, why does General right. Kelly stay there and, and go through this? Well, you know, is he trying to do what what H.R. Haldeman what did Haldeman with Nixon? Did. Yeah, there are, there are some parallels there that we've seen come out about two months ago. You you certainly recall that there was the anonymous op-ed in The New York right. Times right. talking about uh, resisting the president's misguided impulses and making sure that the president was not doing the worst things to the country. And then right around the same time, Bob Woodward published Fear, in which there were cases, uh, the most prominent being, I think, Gary Cohn taking a paper mm-hmm. off the president's desk so he couldn't sign it. I tell you what, if if there is a situation, and let us hope we never get here, Tara, let's, let's not go here. But if there's a situation whereby any president decides on a whim, just because he rolled the dice and he didn't like that it came up one, that he's going to pull out the nuclear codes and launch all American nuclear weapons everywhere around the world with no even with, with not even the semblance of a national security justification. We would all want somebody like a chief of staff or a secretary of defense to physically block that from happening. That That's happened. Mass- that happened That's, with Nixon, right? Well, when Nixon. There is a story about that that I could not confirm. So mm-hmm. I think I wrote it up as reportedly or supposedly that James Schlesinger, Secretary of Defense, right. said if any order comes in from the president in the last few days of his administration involving nuclear use, you talk to me first. Now, I don't know the conversation that led to that. The telephone game could it could have been right. him saying it's political am, lore at this point. <laughs> yeah, I am in the National Command Authority, so you're supposed to go through the Secretary of Defense anyway, or at least through the Defense Department chain of command. Who knows whether he actually put that in there? But if Nixon, not because of any national security threat, but just because he was bored, or just because it was Tuesday, or just because he rolled one on a die. If, if he decided to launch every nuclear weapon in the U.S. arsenal, I think most people in the world would say, yes, we want somebody to step in there and do that. Now, doing that would be against all norms of faithful service. It might be illegal, but we would let them bear the consequences of that because they did the right thing. That is a far step away from the president signing the revocation of a free trade agreement, which may be bad policy. Right. But that is not the same as the murder of hundreds of millions of innocent people. Where the line is between those two is really hard. I I say it's really close to the murder of hundreds of millions of people because you are essentially inserting your unelected right over the president's elected right to make such decisions. Now, we hope we don't get there. We hope we have a situation where we have oversight from Congress, where we have a president who listens to advisors. But it was a little bit disturbing to see this trend of undermining from within, even if we agree with the positions being taken by those doing the undermining, that is something that will end up harming presidents who should have the moral authority to act on their constitutional power by being elected. There are so many fascinating stories and historical references in your book that makes it such an easy read. And I encourage people to pick it up because I learned a lot um, about about things that at times in history that I didn't realize. And just the parallels to what's going on today are absolutely fascinating. Um, One last question before I let you go. You've been really generous with your time. Um, What keeps you up at night? about what's happening today based on all of your research, the books you've written. um, What is it the most about this presidency that keeps you up at night? My concern is the longer term damage to the established principles of government. That is, we have been able to assume and we've had bad presidents before. Like you said, the book is full of stories 
about bad presidents and how we've gotten past them. My concern is that through all of that, we've always had something to fall back to. We had to fight a war to do it in the 1860s, but we've always fallen back to the fact that we have a legislature making laws, we have a judicial branch interpreting the laws, and we have a, an executive branch executing those laws. In the last several decades, in part because of the needs of the Cold War, we've developed this imperial presidency where the presidency has developed a blank check for many things that can be used for good, and it has, and that can be used for evil, which it has. But you don't protect against the evil by giving the president more power. You don't protect against the evil by leaving that unchecked. My concern is by having a very dynamic president who is doing so without regard for many of these longstanding institutions of the U.S. government, that it's going to be a long time to rebuild the rifts that are there. Mm -hmm. But I still end on an optimistic note, because guess what? We have had horrible presidents, and we have always found ways of removing them that have not led to the disintegration of the American Republic. Yes, we've had assassinations. Yes, we've had a civil war. But we still have a country. And I would say that we've survived. We've even thrived as a country because we have these mechanisms of removing presidents so that we don't have to rip ourselves apart when we get just one bad leader. I think we'll come out of this even stronger, even if it takes a while. And I always like to end on a positive note. So the, so the bottom line is, folks, the end is not near. We will make it through this. We've been through this before as a country and we, we've pulled out of it and David Priest says we'll pull out of it again this time too. Thank you so much for joining me. And how can people uh, find you? Social hey, media? Thank you. It was, a, it, was a, it was a pleasure to chat. Um, they can find me on Twitter at David Priest, D-A-V-I-D-P-R-I-E-S-S. Uh, also, as you mentioned, I'm the chief operating officer of Lawfare Blogs. So you'll be seeing me out and about on that platform more often. And then, of course, the book, How to Get Rid of a President, can be found wherever fine books are sold. Indeed. I got my copy from good old-fashioned Barnes & Noble. But wherever the books are sold, support David Priest is excellent work. Uh, David, thank you again so much for joining me, and I hope we talk again soon. You're welcome. I hope so, too. So as I mentioned earlier, um, I just, uh, as we head into the holidays and just the disaster out in California, there's so much help that needs to be done to help rebuild, rebuild people's lives. And so there are some charities that are out there who are helping directly on the ground. Um, there's a couple of options. Uh, I've said before, I'm not a big fan of the Red Cross and larger organizations like that. I mean, some people... That's their cup of tea, not mine. I prefer more direct on the ground um, charities that uh, don't spend so much money on advertising and, you know, CEO salaries. But um, some of those uh, I've, I've been looking at and uh, I'm an animal lover. And some of the pictures of the, the heartbreaking pictures of the poor, you know, dogs and cats that have been left behind out in California or who are injured or who are now homeless, they need to be adopted. Um, they just broke my heart. So if you want to help animals affected by the wildfires, there is a charity. Um, you can. It's called VCA Charities. Um, the VCA, I think they're the National Animal Hospital um, franchise. You see VCA hospitals all over the country. And um, several of them in Northern California are offering free pet boarding for pets who are affected and, um, and help there. So... 
That nonprofit is called vcacharities.org. Um, if you want to help animals, probably the ASVCA is doing some things too. But um, that's one that's local to California. Uh, also, the uh, California Community Foundation's Southern California Wildlife Relief Fund. Um, they support the intermediate and long-term recovery efforts for major California wildfires. Um, that's calfund.org. Uh, there's also the California Fire Foundation. They provide emotional and financial assistance to the families of fallen firefighters. I mean, these firemen, they are absolute heroes out there. What they do, it is like hell on earth. And God bless them, what they do and their families. And some of these firemen, you know, they lose their lives doing this and it affects their families. So if you want to help with the firemen and some of these first responders have lost everything also in Paradise, California. I mean, there, I, I believe it was like something like 70% of their police department lost their homes too. Um, or some overwhelming percentage, uh, which is awful. But um, this is specifically for firemen, and that is cafirefoundation.org. You also have the Los Angeles Fire Department Foundation. Um, this supports the LAFD in protecting life, liberty, property, and environment. Um, and they have also, they've been phenomenal. Uh, you know, these local organizations you can't always depend on the feds. You know, it's the guys on the ground that do the most of the work. And um, you can help with support them. That's support LAFD.org. That's support LAFD.org. So those are some um, some charities that are helping. Uh, Charity Navigator is also a really good resource, too. If you want to look for others uh, that are helping, they... You know, they have a rating system of reliable charities. So there's charitynavigator.org also if you want to look on your own as well. So that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. I hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, please tweet me, talk about your Thanksgiving traditions, and maybe send me some pictures at honestly underscore Tara. Big thank you again to David Priest for joining me this week and um, checking, talking about his book, How to Get Rid of a President. Um, you can also reach me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer or my personal Twitter, Twitter Tara Setmayer. And um, I will uh, I will be enjoying Thanksgiving. I don't know about um, Black Friday. Usually we start decorating the house, but I don't know if there's good sales. I'm a sucker for a good sale. So <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. I might talk about it next week if I got a good deal on something. I'll share it. But uh, everybody have a great week. Happy Thanksgiving. God bless to everyone. Stay safe. And uh, next week, Max Boot joins me to talk about uh, his book, The Corrosion of Conservatism. So that'll be part two next week with Max Boot. Have a great Thanksgiving, everybody. Mm-hmm.